God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 11. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 18 through chapter 12 and verse 6. Yahweh made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me they devised schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. But Yahweh of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life and say, Do not prophesy in the name of Yahweh, or you will die by our hand. Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and none of them shall be left. For I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. Righteous are you, O Yahweh, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Yahweh, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beast and the birds are swept away because they said, He will not see our latter end. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, Forgive us of where we remain culpably ignorant because we have not turned our hearts towards your word. And so I pray, Father, we would remain innocent, we would grow in righteousness, but that we would not remain so naive We would understand that we are sheep sent out among wolves. We would be wise. Father, forgive us of our despair and our doubting. Because we've been seeking a peace 
that isn't to be found this side of your kingdom come. And so may we be content in the battle knowing you are with us. No weapon formed against us will prosper save in any way you purpose for your glory and our good. Bless the preaching of your word now. In Christ's name, amen. David said that the righteous are like a tree planted by the streams. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that's carried away by the wind. But sometimes, trees can feel like chaff. And the chaff appear as solid as a redwood. The saints, this side of Eden, longing for the new creation, lament that this is so. But it's easy for righteous lament to turn to doubt and despair. And such despair as I think we see in Jeremiah here, is rooted in ignorance and unbelief. We're ignorant. We forget we're not home yet. We are exiles in a foreign and hostile land. We are on the enemy's turf. He has the seeming advantage, just calculating by worldly measures. We don't believe. Often we feel as though the ship of the church is sinking. When in reality, the ocean of this world is in such turbulence because it's being drained. This present world is fading away. In the midst of the tempest, faith knows that the ship holds fast. While it's this world that's being Drained. We, we have the wrong reference point, and this is why we despair. When our eyes are on this world, it seems as though if, if the world's the reference point, the, the people of this world, the wicked, are rooted in it. They are not being blown about. But when our eyes are fixed on the sun, then we understand that indeed the wicked are like chaff. They are fading with this world. Saints, there is knowledge for us here in this text. Knowledge that will bolster our faith. Jeremiah didn't know. And then God made it known to him. And what's made known to him is the danger that he's in. Many are not wise to the world because they're worldly wise. We remain ignorant of the threat of the world because we're so immersed in it. We're seeking knowledge for how to navigate this world from our peers that are enmeshed in this world with us. They haven't made it through. They do not know how to navigate it. The wise of this world can only speak of life under the sun. And we need a higher vantage point. We need words from beyond the sun. We need a bird's eye view of the maze of this world to tell us the way in which to walk. So it matters not what you know if God hasn't taught you by His Word. 
If God hasn't taught you, you are blind, you're ignorant, you're deaf. Spiritually, you're in the dark. To the sinner, we say these things not in pride and arrogance as though we've figured them out of ourselves, but God has spoken in His Son to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We know by God's grace and we pray the same for you, but saints, many of us remain aloof when our God has spoken. So hear Him this morning. Now it's not knowledge of the Son, you see, that's being held out here, but it's a kind of knowledge that we can learn from the Son. We'll see that that he had a kind of wisdom. It's the kind of wisdom that Jeremiah is being called to here, to recognize that we're sheep among wolves. What's being made known to Jeremiah is their deeds, 11 and verse 18. There's a kind of mystery as you approach this text. Their deeds. Whose deeds? What deeds are they? And it's intentionally so, and this mystery will become more and more clear as we proceed. But before God makes known these deeds to Jeremiah, we're told of Jeremiah's state before this. He was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. He's not only ignorant, he's innocent. Saints, we need to keep the innocence and lose the ignorance. We need to grow wise in the sun. Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter, but he wasn't led like a lamb to the slaughter with a dumb look on his face. He was wise. The saints are often slaughtered, but they shouldn't be surprised. They shouldn't, uh, their, their faith shouldn't come unraveled whenever the world starts persecuting them. This world isn't rated G. And though the world is now offering safe spaces, we need to understand that the world is incapable of doing so. This world is not a safe space, and she cannot offer any. The world is so obscene it makes HBO blush. And whereas you can and should turn off the HBO raunchiness, you can't turn off this world. And so remain innocent of their sins, but don't remain ignorant of the fact of sinners. You walk among them. The Puritan Thomas Brooke in his most popular book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, advises, beloved in our dearest Lord, Christ, the Scriptures, your own hearts, Satan's devices, are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. Again, Christ, the Scriptures, your own hearts, Satan's devices. The church is immature, and she's therefore ignorant. We are immature and swept up into the culture of cool with this world. We are playing on the devil's playground. He's lured us in and we fail to realize the big bullseye that we're standing on. He got us exactly where he wanted us. We're children taking suckers from the strangers of this world whenever our father has taught us better. Worldly ideologies, affections concepts keep us in the dark. We remain ignorant. The deeds Jeremiah was ignorant of here were schemes to slaughter him. And it's nonetheless the case whenever concepts like critical theory are being advocated in schools. 
that we have rejoiced thinking they were bastions of Reformed theology. And we mustn't be so naive as to the plans of our enemy that such worldly concepts embraced are meant for our slaughter by our enemy. Jeremiah has been speaking about the destruction that Babylon is going to bring on Judah, but he's been ignorant of the destruction that's intended against him. And the deep malice that's involved here is that they don't want Jeremiah to have any part of God's covenant. Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. You remember Jeremiah lamented as every man in Judah in chapter 10 and verse 20 in this way. My tent is destroyed and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains. Jeremiah had no wife. He had no children. And so he is already experiencing what is awaiting Judah at large to where their name will not be remembered among the covenant people of God. And so what Jeremiah is lamenting for his kinsmen, they are plotting against him. Let's cut him off from the covenant blessings that God has given to his people. The significance of this can be seen in Numbers chapter 27. You remember whenever the daughters of Zelophed came to Moses? And they said, our father had no sons. So why should he not have a name among the people of God in essence? They plea. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. These men want nothing of Jeremiah to endure among God's people. Cut off his name. No part in the inheritance given to Israel. And so their plotting is now contrasted with Jeremiah's pleading. But O Yahweh of hosts, verse 20. When the wicked plot, the saints should plead. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Jeremiah begins by addressing God in a way that praises God, that roots his prayer. O Yahweh of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind. The reason Jeremiah knows these plots, these schemes, these deeds, is because God tests the heart and the mind. And so now Jeremiah, knowing that God tests the heart and the mind, knowing that God is righteous, he pleads, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you have I committed my cause. Now it's just here that many saints think he's gone too far. He's now starting to respond to sin with sin. We know better now, right? Because Paul's instructed us to say, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, Romans 14. Yes, vengeance is God, precisely. But do you not see that is exactly what Jeremiah is calling upon at this point? I've committed my cause to you. Vengeance is the Lord's. He's trusting Him. And perhaps it's precisely this kind of trust that can liberate someone to love their enemies. Proverbs explains how trusting God to take vengeance can free you in this way. Proverbs 20, 22, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for Yahweh. Wait for Yahweh to do what? Do justice. And He will deliver you. What's the sense of deliverance? How's this concept teased out through the Old Testament? Well, the greatest example is the deliverance of the Exodus. How did God save His people? By justice upon those who oppressed them. What Jeremiah prays here is so often on the lips of David as we read through the Psalms. And do you, can you find another mere man in Scripture who so often extended mercy to his enemies as David? How could he do so? Because he trusted his God to do justly. Well, surely... Well, let me, before I get to that, uh, we shouldn't pit texts like this against one another. But even so, the objection, surely God won't answer such a prayer as prominent. We're so nice and naive, you see. But remain innocent, not ignorant. There are times to recognize that you're casting your pearls before swine. There are times whenever we should shake the dust of our feet off as a testimony against the Word of God not being received. Whenever you pray, your kingdom come, do you realize, though chiefly the longing in that at this point in time in God's plan of redemption is that we would see Him call souls out of darkness into light, do you realize whenever you pray your kingdom come that climactically and ultimately what that means is salvation by judgment. Delivering His church from the wicked out of this world. Jesus instructed the twelve saying, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet When you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And he immediately went on to tell them, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be wise and innocent. Go forward as a lamb among wolves, trusting your heavenly Father that He tests the heart and the mind. And He's righteous. And He's just. God sees the dust of our feet. And He hears and He answers the prayers of His people that cry out concerning their blood that has been spilt. Promising to judge and avenge, Revelation chapter 6. That's the New Testament, by the way. Not simply in the Old 
that we see this kind of plea. Now God, before He pronounces judgment, verse 21, He names the condemned. There's a kind of formal accusation that's going forward, a formal condemnation rather. Who, who is it that's been plotting against Jeremiah? The, the, the mystery is starting to unfold more. Who is it that's plotting against him? It's the men of Anathoth. Who are they? Why is that significant? You remember how our study of this book opened? Jeremiah 1.1 The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests... So Jeremiah is of the priestly lineage. One of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin. So these are the men of Jeremiah's hometown that are scheming and plotting against him. And then further, Joshua 21.18 lets us know that this was one of the towns that were allotted to the Levites. And because of Jeremiah 1.1, which we just read in 1 Kings 2.26, we understand it's not just simply Levites, but particularly there's a contingent of priests that reside in this town just north of Jerusalem. Why do they want to kill him? Well, it could be that he said things like, the priests did not say, where is Yahweh? Those who handled the law did not know me, Jeremiah 2.8. It could be Things like an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? Jeremiah 5, 30 and 31. They don't want him to prophesy. It's not so much Jeremiah. It's God they don't want to hear. Jeremiah can live. So long as he does not prophesy. So do you see how silly, how naive are objections? Surely, God would not hear such... They don't want to hear God. And we think God won't hear Jeremiah. Whenever the reason he's zealous for vengeance to come upon them isn't some kind of personal vendetta against those who are against him. It's that these men oppose the word of Yahweh that's bringing destruction down upon the people of God. If you are zealous for the truth of God, you will be zealous for God's judgment to come come against those who want to squelch His word. If you are zealous For the salvation of souls. You will be earnest. That God would make plain. The abundance of false teachers. Who silence and distort it and pervert it. For the sake. That people might know. The glory of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's not because you're unloving that you would be earnest for such, but because you are loving towards your fellow man. God answers this prayer. He does answer this prayer. He speaks judgment against these men. Therefore thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and none of them shall be left. This is specifically concerning those 
who are opposing Jeremiah. That's made clear in Ezra 2.23. We're told that 128 men of Anathoth returned from exile. This is a just judgment. This is particularly concerning all those who are opposing Jeremiah. And the, the idea of their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. Remember what they wished upon Jeremiah is that he be cut off from covenant. What this judgment is saying, it is they who are cut off from the inheritance of Israel because they want nothing to do with the God of Israel. But do you realize what an exercise in faith it would have been for Jeremiah to pronounce this word from Yahweh? Do not speak any word from Yahweh or we will kill you. Yahweh says, Jeremiah, I got another word. I'm going to kill them. Okay, I see them. They've got the capability to kill me. I can't see God. And he's telling me to pronounce this word. Notice that God does this. I will punish them. Verse 22. I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth. Verse 23. It is not an evil for the people of God to long that God be God. It is not unjust for the saints to long for God's justice. It's not unrighteous for the righteous to long for God's righteousness. And God hears such cries as your kingdom come. Though God has spoken judgment, Jeremiah goes on to lament, to complain. It starts well enough. It starts with a good affirmation and confession. When I complain, when I lament, you are righteous. However this plays out, you're righteous. And I believe he's trusting that, but he does have this complaint that he lays before Yahweh. He has a case. He asks, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? God has spoken judgment, but Jeremiah would like to see it sooner, quickly. But even in the accusation, you know what Jeremiah continues to affirm. Over all of this, God is sovereign. You plant them. The reason why he's coming to God with these questions is because he recognizes God is sovereign. He's no deist. He doesn't think God has, has wound the clock up of creation and let it go. He does not try to excuse God from the problem of evil. By thinking God is just loving, He lets man have His freedom. And the reason why we see all this evil is it's just owing to the man. No, He sees, his, he sees God as sovereign. And Lord, over all of this, the wicked are planted, they take root, they grow and produce fruit. And he asks God, why is this so? Despite their hypocrisy, you're near in their mouth, but you are far from their hearts. This is seemingly the exact opposite of what is sung in Psalm 1. The righteous are like trees, the wicked are like chaff. But why does it seem the opposite as I look on this world? You remember Job lamented the same reality? Why do the wicked live and reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. He continues. 
They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we get if we pray to Him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is it that, their lamp, that the lamp of the wicked is put out? That their calamity comes upon them? That God distributes pains in His anger? That they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away? How often is it that they are really like chaff? Job laments. Likewise, you remember Asaph in Psalm 73 saying that he almost stumbled and fell when he looked at the wicked and their prosperity. And he thought vanity, his pursuit of holiness in the ways of Yahweh. In contrast to such hypocrisy, Jeremiah pleads, You know me. You see and test my heart toward you. Their heart is far from you. You know my heart. Jeremiah is not saying my heart is is perfect. He's saying my heart is true. The contrast is that, the implicit contrast is that the wicked are established. And the righteous seem to be carried away. And so Jeremiah asked that the roles be reversed. They want to lead me like a lamb to the slaughter. Yahweh, I plead, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. He then laments, asking how long the land will mourn. Even the beasts are impacted by this. The birds swept away. As the ground was cursed for Adam's sin, so now the land promised to Israel is in duress because of the sins of the people. Specifically, two reasons are given. The first one, general, for the evil of those who dwell in it. That's the reason why this is happening to the land. And second, because they said, He will not see our latter end. What's this concerning? This is part of their scheming against Jeremiah. This is part of those words that are being cried, the full cry after Jeremiah. This is is part of that full cry. He won't see our latter end. Why? Because we're going to cut him off from the land of the living. Now you see how it is and why it is Jeremiah is pleading as he is. This isn't personal. He looks out on the land and he sees the curse of God coming on it. And he understands that the reason that is so is because the people refuse to hear Yahweh's word through his prophet. Now, if you are, though, fed up with Jeremiah's prayers for vengeance, and now for slaughter, you might take some comfort that Yahweh's about to rebuke him. But, note, it isn't the substance of his prayer that's rebuked. It's his impatience. 
Jeremiah here is not called on to be nicer, but to be tougher, to endure. Stop whining and endure. In Jeremiah 1, God told Jeremiah, I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares Yahweh, to deliver you. So this rebuke that we see here in verses 5 and 6 is Yahweh fortifying His city. It's Yahweh forging these iron, this iron pillar, casting the bronze wall that is Jeremiah. As Mr. Beaver said of Aslan, so it is true of our God. He's good, but he is not safe. Have you ever wondered what possessed Lewis to write children's tale wherein a lion puts children through such terrifying experiences? What possessed him? God's truth. Because so does our Father with all his children. Not even his only begotten beloved Son who was flawless and perfect was exempt. No one suffered as a son. And so can you not see why with all this, that whenever Yahweh answers Jeremiah's lament, He doesn't really answer the lament, He answers Jeremiah. And He answers Jeremiah with a question. Derek Kidner comments, This is one of many cries of why and how long in the Old Testament, to which God's answer is never philosophical. As though he owed us explanations, but always pastoral, to rebuke us, to reorient us, or reassure us. So God asked Jeremiah two if-then questions, which expose his lack of fortitude, and call for him to buck up in light of the greater trials that lie ahead. It's the same question put two ways. First, if you're weary after a foot race with men, how can you keep up with horses? The imagery here isn't athletic. It's martial. It's a military metaphor. If you can't keep up with the infantry, how are you going to fare when the cavalry comes? Second, if he's so trusting in a safe place, or as the New American Standard puts it, if you fall down in a land of peace, what will he do in the thicket of Jordan? The idea is, Jeremiah, if this is the kind of despair you've come to, at this point, what are you going to do when Babylon comes and the exile occurs? And now the final twist in this mystery is revealed. We learn that it's not simply his hometown. But those who plot against Jeremiah include his brothers, the house of his father, his own clan and family. 
Even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. They are among those who say, let us destroy the tree with its fruit and cut him off from the land of the living. Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or we will kill you. He will not see our latter end. They are dealing treacherously with Jeremiah. They speak friendly words. Yahweh tells Jeremiah, don't believe them. The the reality of Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 9 and verse 8 hits home. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Saints, in light of this, We should not be twitchy conspiracy theorists suspecting every unbeliever of wanting to assassinate us. We shouldn't be cynical. We should be strong and wise. Do not trust men, but trust God. And trusting God You have every reason to walk forward in integrity, faith, confidence, love, obedience, knowing He is with you. Too many, though, readily trust the news, entertainment, advertisements, social media, schools, politicians. We fail to exercise wisdom and discernment In the safe places, how do we ever expect to fare out there? We fail to exercise it even within the context of the church. It was in the context of a local church that Paul exhorted, test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. It's within the context of a local church that John warns, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God For many false prophets have gone out into the world. In the context of the church, we're far too nice and naive. Just because it's a Christian bookstore doesn't mean you can trust whatever's on the shelf. Indeed, I would say, it's such places that the greatest dangers often lie for the people of God. But if we're so nice and naive here, how do we expect to run with horses. I trust my brothers and sisters in this body, but I'm not so ingenuous as to think that none of us can fall or be a stumbling block. Not even myself. My confidence isn't as look as I look out at you and think how great any of you are, or look in the mirror. My confidence is that our Lord promised the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And this means I can trust my God and I know there is an assault. But it is one doomed to fail. And so let us be strong in the Lord And then the strength of His might, putting on the armor of God, recognizing we are exiles in a foreign land. 
Saints, we may feel like chaff being beaten against solid trees. But look to Christ. And as we do, I think we'll have an encounter that's quite like that that Shasta had with Aslan. Speaking into the dark to what he knows not what, he complains that he must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. He goes on to unfold all his miseries. Even the multiple lions he seems to have encountered on his most recent perilous journey. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two lions the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with mouth open and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Arvis. I was the cat who confronted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. So it was you who wounded Arvis? It was I. But for what, child, said the voice, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you, asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid the voice belonged to something that would eat him. Nor was it the voice of a ghost, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him. Yet he felt glad too. Saints. Look to Christ. He was surrounded by enemies, but he didn't tremble before them because he feared his God. None was ever so innocent, yet wise. He was tender and meek, and yet bold and strong. He was a prophet without honor in his hometown, despised and rejected by men, even thought mad by his brothers for a time. But his heavenly father, with him, was well pleased. Saints, he was crucified, but he rose. Men conspired against him, but only according to the Father's plan that he might be exalted above all. And we're promised that in him, 
We are sons. We are co-heirs with Christ, provided, Romans 8, we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. And so we are regarded as sheep to the slaughter, being killed for His namesake in tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in danger. We are more than conquerors through Him that loved us because nothing shall separate us from the love of the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Saints, Jesus leads us only through lesser trials than those He endured for us. He endured the wrath of God. We only need face the wrath of men. Be strong for all your trials will be your glory. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in your bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Has your reference point been changed? As you look to the the crucified and risen Christ, reflecting on Him, can you not say with when the horse, please, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. Or as Job said in one of his better moments, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Sinners, lost, scheming against the world, the word, excuse me, lost and scheming against the word of the Lord, Don't comfort yourself by looking to the wrong reference point. The ship of the church is not sinking. God's kingdom came in Christ. And He is gathering His people from every tribe, people, and nation. The gates of hell will not prevail against her, though she be beaten sore. And He will return. And He will judge justly those who have stood against His bride. You may seem strong if your eyes are fixed on this world. But if you lift your eyes to the exalted Son of God, Jesus Christ, you will see that the wicked are indeed like chaff. 
whenever the wicked of this world plotted against him, saying, he will not see our latter end. When they plotted against the Lord's anointed, his prophet, the word, the son of God, God incarnate in the flesh, they did nothing but achieve the purposes of his father to exalt him above all. As John Stott said, what looks like and indeed was the defeat of goodness by evil is also and more certainly the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he was himself overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim is the victor. And the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. The wicked are indeed like chaff. The righteous are trees planted by the stream. Sinner, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And despite all your rebellion, He will save you. By His death, your sins removed and atoned for. And by His life, counted righteous and just. Cease your plotting against the Word. Jesus Christ, and hear, and believe, and know peace with God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of our whining and unbelief. Strengthen and bolster us for the fight to go forward and boldly declare your word. And draw sinners to yourself in faith and repentance. In Christ's name, amen.